It's 9 p.m. at night, and you are hungry. You order a pizza from Domino's. You live on a street that's dark, so you've installed a smart light bulb in front of your mailbox that lights up the address. When the pizza at Domino's is ready, you want the light bulb on your mailbox to light up so that the delivery person can read your address when they arrive in front of your house with the pizza. The internet should make it possible to have this kind of event-driven, connected world. Anything that is connected to the internet should be able to send signals to anything else on the internet so that our lives gradually become more automated. This is what IFTTT does, if this then that, otherwise known as IFT. Users of IFT can easily create applets to wire different services together. You can use IFT to trigger an email whenever three of your friends retweet something on Twitter. You could use IFT to flash the lights in your house when Bitcoin hits new market highs. You can use IFT to send yourself a pizza whenever Bitcoin crashes. IFT makes it easy to connect different services together, and a lot of work goes into the infrastructure that enables these billions of events to process correctly. Nikki Leach from IFT's engineering team joins the show today to describe how IFT allows for integrations between services that were not built to integrate. And he talks about the scheduling, the data engineering, and the monitoring of the company's software stack. Nikki Leach is an engineer with IFTTT, If This Then That, otherwise known as IFT. Nikki, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Excited to be here. Today, we're going to talk about IFT and the backend infrastructure that powers it. Explain what IFT does for people who don't know. Sure. So there are sort of two sides to IFT. As a consumer, IFT allows you to connect all the different things in your life and make them work together. And those things might be like connecting your Twitter account to your Facebook account or your connected car to your lights at home. It provides easy functionality for users to, to build those connections themselves. And then the other side is that we have a platform for companies to integrate with IFT and provide those integrations for their end users. It's a really easy way to have one sort of integration work with today over 550 other services on the platform. Mm -hmm. There's these two abstractions, service and applet, that people can build on IFT. What do these two terms mean? Definitely. So a service is sort of the, the term that we use to describe either something like an internet service, again, like Twitter, or maybe an internet-connected product, like your light bulb or your car or Domino's Pizza. And an applet is sort of a unit of functionality that integrates with one or more different services. So you might have an applet that will post your, this is sort of like the canonical example, posting your Instagram photos to Twitter directly, as opposed to having just like the Instagram link, which doesn't show up in a lot of Twitter clients. So users turn on individual applets, or they can create their own to create those sort of mappings between different services. Mm-hmm. Okay. And give a few more examples of services and applets so people can you know, understand how these different components fit together. Right. So services are sort of like any sort of brand or property that you might have an association with, again, sort of like on the social side, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, in terms of internet-connected devices, like your Hue light bulbs, your LifeX light bulbs. We have a couple sort of like more novel 
service integrations like, again, Domino's Pizza. See that we have this pizza tracker service where you can see the status of your pizzas. It goes through the like preparation and delivery pipeline and then do different things. So you might have an applet that says, when my pizza is out for delivery, turn on my porch lights. Mm-hmm. Right. What are some of the apps or applets or services that you use in your everyday life? How does Ift fit into your, your daily life? I'm a total Slack addict. So a lot of my applets are around like curating content in Slack. We use it around the office a lot for things like stand-up reminders and things like that. I also have recently started doing a little bit more of like life cataloging. And a really interesting way to do that is to take different events that you find, like I guess like input sources that you find meaningful and having the output be a calendar. So things like your check-ins on Foursquare Swarm. We have this awesome location service where you can set up triggers for when you enter or exit given areas, like when I get to work. And having those all end up on a calendar, it really gives you a good sense of sort of like what's going on in your life retrospectively. Mm-hmm. How has the rise of the voice interfaces affected the IFT business? It certainly brought us a number of users. Amazon Alexa is certainly one of the more popular services on the platform. And I think that it's a really natural pairing. Before there were any or even many skills on the Alexa, in the Alexa ecosystem, there were a ton of integrations that you could use with Ift. I know that when Amazon launched in Europe, Ift users were just like clamoring to get support in the product. So I think that there is like a natural alignment between sort of again, that like one-to-many integration that users are able to really apply creativity to and build interesting integrations. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's start to talk about what's happening on the back end. When I stand up a new service and that service integrates, how does it connect to IFT's end? Are you standing up an API server for that service or what exactly is going on? Definitely. So I think we can sort of answer that question starting historically. Seven years ago, when IFT was started, all those initial integrations were just built directly into our our monolithic application is just like API integrations using different client libraries and things like that. And it didn't take long for us to realize that that just like really doesn't scale in terms of our ability to integrate with like as many services as possible and also to have like a deep understanding of the best ways for those services to work together. So like really the people who build those services have the best understanding of like the valuable data, what interactions are powerful on their platforms. So about three years ago now we started building the IFT platform and the API side of that is what we call the IFT protocol. And it's really just a standard set of HTTP endpoints that you have to implement to integrate with IFT. And there's like a schema that basically defines what a trigger should look like, what an action should look like, and a bunch of tooling around making sure that those endpoints actually sort of fill that specification. From sort of a a soup to nuts perspective, there are two different ways that partners tend to integrate with the platform. With their IFT integration being sort of directly inside of their application, you know, sort of like making database calls directly or whatever it might be, or the IFT integration being sort of like a shim service in between their either public or internal HTTP APIs and the IFT protocol. Can you walk me through what happens when someone makes a call to 
a recipe. So, and I guess we we actually have not explored the the terminology recipe. We talked about applet. We talked about service. Describe what a recipe is. Maybe you could refresh people on what a service and an applet is while you're while you're doing that. And eventually, we'll get to a more detailed description of the back end architecture. But I just want to give people a really good understanding of what the front end looks like. Yeah. So I think that thinking about sort of the the important ift vernacular services are brands. They're like logos or they're things that you have a relationship with. Applets are specific functionality. Again, like if sort of if this, then that statements, that's where the name comes from. Applets are sort of a rebrand of a previous concept called recipes. And it was really sort of a, there's some functional differences, but for the most part, it was sort of a marketing decision. The idea being oh, that, like we want recipe implies work, right? Like recipes make baking a cake a lot easier than trying to figure that out on your own. But you still have to go through the steps of baking the cake. Applets, sort of the idea that we want to communicate is that they're little apps that you turn on and, you know, you don't have to do a lot to get that. Hmm. And then inside of an applet, there are, there's going to be more one triggers and actions. And a trigger is a new piece of data coming into the system. So that might be like you got to a specific location, you posted a tweet, a new entry was created in a database somewhere. And an action is creating content, doing something. So that might be sending a push notification or turning on a light bulb. Hmm. The service where I upload a picture to Instagram and instead of just copy-pasting the link to Instagram into Twitter, you know, if you instead wanted to have the picture itself render in the tweet, this is a really common use of ift as you are as you already mentioned this specific use case of instagram linking up to twitter this would be a recipe well sorry an applet formerly called a recipe and in this example twitter and instagram would both be services and you're linking together these services with an applet have i described that correctly that's a hundred percent correct you did okay, it better right. than i could have <laughs> <laughs> okay so in calling that recipe, there are some pieces of data that are being passed to the recipe. Where are Twitter and Instagram plugging in and listening for that event? And what pieces of data that do they need from that event? Definitely. So at a, the most basic level, this is maybe getting a little bit into like how, how, how IFT works behind the scenes. Ift is calling APIs to check for new data constantly, millions of times a minute, effectively. So in this specific case, like Twitter or Instagram to Twitter, Ift is pulling Instagram's API to say, are there new photos? Did Jeff post a new photo? And when we detect a change, we take that data, package it up into sort of a, an understandable set of pieces of data we call ingredients that the user can configure to say, like, semantically this like photo url i want that to be the thing that feeds the image that i post to twitter so then we do that mapping and then on the other side of of the applet execution we're sending that data to twitter using sort of effectively going through the twitter's public api how much volume is coming through ift how many calls to different 
applets are you getting? We are on the volume of about a billion API calls a month. And most of that, this is sort of like the dirty secret of IFT, I guess. Most of that is us polling to see if anything has changed. And in almost every case, nothing has changed. So the total volume of, of API calls that like result in some desired outcome is much lower. But we keep up that volume in order for things to happen as quickly as possible in places where there isn't a real-time integration. It's unfortunate that you have to do the polling instead of there being some web hook or web task on the providers, on the services end, where they could have their web hook be scanning the event stream, you know, for things that they would want to publish to IFT. It's kind of unfortunate. It's a lot of wasted effort because of that polling. So we do have a real-time interface in the protocol. And what that allows our partners to do is let us know that new data is available for us to fetch. Due to a number of circumstances, often just like the functionality not being there in like the origin API, the default behavior is to just pull on, on regular intervals for that data. But for something like Amazon Alexa, where the latency in that like exchange is so important, they definitely use the real-time API to make sure that that data enters the IFT system as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so whether the the service is sending you the data or you're polling for it, eventually you know, you get notified of some new event, and that happens on a very regular basis. And if I understand the architecture correctly, the first place that the event is going to get registered is in Kafka. Can you describe where the where the API call is going to begin in your architecture? So the way that it works today, we do these checks on, I guess we can, it's easier to talk just about the, the polling interface first, okay, and then we can sure, sort of layer sure. on top real time. We perform checks on a per applet basis. So if you have your applet that says, Anytime I post a photo to Instagram, post that to Twitter. We enqueue that applet on some some schedule that we determine. We can put a pin on that and come back to it. And then once that applet is checked, we make the API call to Instagram, check to see if data is available. And if it is in line, that goes to the next phase where we post that data to Twitter. So there isn't today a disconnect between like the in ingest and like action functionality that ends up being just like one synchronous or I don't know continuous process that happens on an applet by applet basis. Hmm. So what role does Kafka play in this architecture? We currently don't use Kafka. We do use Kinesis. Oh. We use it mostly as a tool for like our, our data and analytics pipelines, as well as some of our other systems where we just need the sort of like a queue of data to be super durable. One of those cases is our activity feed system, where every outcome from an applet being run is output to an activity feed that a user can look at to see, like, did things work? If not, like, what was the failure? Other interesting things around like the state of their account go through that same system. Okay, maybe I misread something or I mis or I read a outdated blog post. I thought there was some kind of buffer may, like main buffering system 
that Kafka was playing a role as, but I guess you don't have really a, a main buffering system. Like you don't have an event, uh, a, a central event log for all of the the applets that are getting triggered. Not in sort of like the critical path of applet execution. Sort of if you were to look at the output of like our applet runtime that ends up being used for analytics, you would see that data. But today it's structured around this sort of like one-to-one mapping between, or one-to-many mapping, I guess, between like an individual trigger check and actions being run. Hmm. So another piece of the architecture that I thought I read about at least was GraphQL. Are you using GraphQL? Definitely. We use GraphQL really heavily to power our client experiences. So the entire data model is exposed via GraphQL, and that is used by our mobile apps and our web front end to build really rich interfaces. Mm. Tell me more about that. It's certainly a, a newer piece of our architecture. About a year ago, maybe a little bit more, we went through sort of like a UI overhaul. This is when we introduced the concept of applets. And part of that was trying to bring a little bit more consistency between the web and mobile experiences. And to do so, we wanted to have like a more consistent interface between them. Like so many web applications, we were, you know, calling directly into the database to render pages and our mobile apps had to use REST APIs. And there was a lot that worked really well about that, but it made it difficult to always keep those experiences in sync. So we made a bet on on GraphQL that we could use that as sort of like the lingua franca between our different front ends. And that has worked out really, really well for us and allowed us to decouple sort of the, the data model itself or like how where that data is persisted, things like that, from our ability to effectively use it on our web properties, our mobile properties. And we even use it internally for some of our some of our like monitoring systems and things like that. So people set up recipes on the mobile apps and GraphQL is the linkage between the mobile apps and the the back end, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that like for folks who aren't familiar with GraphQL, you can just sort of imagine it as like your typical REST API. The big difference being that the client is able to make very specific queries about the data that it's looking for and the relationships between those data those pieces of data. So, you know, as a on the mobile app, you might be requesting information about the applet. And in the mobile UI, you want to, in the same view that you have, like the title and the description of the applet, you also want to show the number of times this applet has been run for a given user. And on the website, we might not want to do that. I'm totally making all of this up, but sort of as like an example, if the call to get, or the yeah, the call to get the number of times an applet has been run is expensive. We don't want to be doing that on the web if we don't need to, if it's not like being shown to the user providing any value. So using GraphQL, we're able to really precisely target the exact amount of data that we want without being wasteful, without downloading extra bytes over the wire, without making database calls or external calls that, that might not be important for a given transaction. Okay. Well, I want to break down in more detail the process of setting up an applet and servicing an applet request. And I think we should figure out a different example because I think some people, the tw- I mean, the Twitter Instagram thing is very a very familiar recipe 
for me or an applet for me, but I think there are probably some people who are listening who do not use either of these <laughs> services, so they have no idea what, what we're talking about. Would maybe the Domino's, Domino's plus Philips Hue light bulb example be better where let's say I order a pizza on Dom, on Domino's and let's say I live in a giant mansion and I've got all these lights, these Philips Hue connected light bulbs that are lining the walkway to my door and I want to have an applet that makes it so that whenever my pizza is ready from Domino's, it's going to turn on all the lights in my walkway because the Domino's is right around the corner from my palatial house and I want the lights to be turned on whenever the Domino's delivery guy comes by. And so, so yeah, so I want this recipe to be able to, this, sorry, this applet to be able to connect Domino's to my Philips Hue connected light bulbs and IFT is going to be the service that brokers that. First of all, is that a reasonable example for us to explore? It's a really exciting picture that you painted. I just want to like call out that for people who are listening, there's a lot of value in these integrations, even if you don't have this amazing palatial mansion. <laughs> people who just have like a light on their front porch might find it valuable too. But yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm totally on board with this one. Okay, great. Then, first of all, when I set up that integration, what is happening on IFT's servers? Sure. So... I think that this is such a common use case. Domino's thought of this when they were building their service. Like They want people to be able to be ready to get their pizza. They want their delivery people to be able to see like that there are steps leading up to your door, whatever it might be. So Domino's has created, has published an applet that says, turn on my porch lights when my pizza is out for delivery. And as a user, you are, if you're on if.com or using our mobile apps and looking at the things that you can either do with Domino's or with your Philips Hue bulbs, you might see this applet. And it should be as simple as turning on the applet. Like literally it's a, a switch that you, you slide and it's on. The configuration depends a little bit on the amount of sort of customizability the author of that applet intends for you, the user, to have. So in this specific case, there's no need for you to customize anything about your, like the Domino's configuration, like a pizza that's out for delivery is a pizza that's out for delivery. But you might want to have the option to specify which light bulbs do you want to have turn on. So as part of turning on this applet and configuring it, the user is presented with a list of their light bulbs. And you would choose the porch light as opposed to your bathroom light. Or, you know, you could choose both, I guess, depending on your use case. So once you have made that, like configured the applet to, to your taste and make sure that it makes sense to you, the next time that a pizza is out for delivery, that functionality will automatically, or that experience will happen for you. Mm -hmm. And on IFT's servers, there's just a polling process that's listening for the Domino's event or Domino's is, is notifying IFT in real time? In this case, I just know this. Domino's does use does use our real-time system. So within seconds of the order being out for delivery, or at least that being represented in the Domino's system, your porch light should turn on. And that's because Domino's has some user ID that they associate with my order and so that they can publish that real-time event and IFT can listen for it. Exactly. Okay. And once that hits IFT's servers... I guess you can process the event and propagate it to the Philips Hue light bulbs. 
and voila, and I guess your, your lights are turned on. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the software infrastructure that is powering the connection of those APIs, kind of your your server infrastructure and how it scales up and down and whatnot, and then we can talk about the you know some of the data infrastructure that allows for analytics on top of that. But I would like to understand just the the runtime infrastructure first. Definitely. So our entire infrastructure today is on AWS. We've been there for for years and are generally, you know, I think as as happy as one can be with a cloud. We're a little bit unique in that for all intents and purposes, our entire workload runs on an AWS service called EC2 Spot. And what that allows you to do is sort of like bid on excess capacity, excess EC2 capacity, and get acquire servers for sort of a, a limited amount of time at a really reduced rate. And to support having, well, I guess like the risk there is that your servers may come and go relatively quickly. To support our infrastructure being able to handle like servers coming in and out of commission, we use Apache Mesos to manage how our individual server tasks like application instances are deployed and run. So we have a large fleet of these Mesos nodes that are just effectively sitting there waiting for for work to be given to them. And they'll run the work that's been distributed by Mesos until the task goes away. And this is across all of our our application infrastructure, both our back-end and our front-end experiences. I think that one of the sort of misconceptions around Spot is that you're like never going to have an instance for more than an hour. In our experience, we have spot instances that stay online for weeks at a time, and we're paying like 20% the sort of like on-demand price for those instances. So it makes a lot of sense for us. Then on top of that, like our sort of like application mesh, on top of Mesos, we use Apache, or I guess Marathon. I don't know who owns it anymore. It's Mesosphere. It's like an application scheduler. And if you're familiar with something like Heroku, it's very similar. There's like a list of applications that are running. You can configure them with environment variables. You can scale them up and down a little bit less like fully featured than something like a Heroku, but it's a pretty familiar analogy for a lot of folks. So we have dozens of applications that are running and then across those applications, thousands and thousands of individual application instances that are being managed by Marathon and Mesos. And then for things like periodic background work, we use another framework on top of Mesos called Kronos, Kronos Cron. So if you have like something that needs to run every hour, Kronos is a really good tool for that. The yep. individual, like our deployment artifact is a Docker image or Docker container, I guess. So again, all of our applications across the infrastructure run in Docker containers. We have a CI CD pipeline built on top of Jenkins that will run any tests for a given application as pull requests are made and then pulled it or merged into master. And then our developers have command line access to tools that allow them to tag an individual commit for a deploy. And that goes through sort of a similar process of making sure that that commit has been tested, that once that build is green from the testing perspective, we publish a Docker image and then give that configuration information to Marathon and Kronos, and then those tasks are deployed. When I think about how I would build the IFT infrastructure today, if we were building it from scratch, the first thing that would come to mind would be serverless 
AWS Lambda or Google Cloud Functions because the call to a recipe seems like a stateless, one-time, spin it up and then spin it down type of event where you can get the functionality you need even from the extremely low-cost infrastructure of an AWS Lambda. Maybe you can tell me if that's true and, and whether or not you see that as a promising application of AWS Lambda for if maybe in the future. We do use Lambda internally for a couple different things. Most notably, we now allow you to, as a, as a power user effectively, to write a little bit of JavaScript code that sits in between a trigger and an action in an applet. So you can do things like, in our, our Domino's to Philips Hue example, check to see if the time of day in the user's time zone is like, I don't know, in the middle of the day. If it is, we don't need to turn on the light. Something like that, right? So we use Amazon Lambda to execute that JavaScript code that our users have provided to us as just sort of like a really simple way to sandbox against anything either intentionally malicious or just like accidentally, you know, wasteful in terms of computation or whatever it might be. I think that there are a couple places where it certainly could make sense to think about serverless in an IFT architecture in the future. I think sort of a lot of people's mental model and certainly one that's attractive to us too is this idea that like we just have this constant stream of data coming from the internet and it hits something like a Kafka or a Kinesis. And then from that, we just execute Lambda functions or serverless functions against that stream of data. Yeah. I think that one of the, the challenges is that like the reality of the internet today is that the real-time story just like isn't there for that to be the only way for us to get data. So we need mm-hmm. to have it, I mean, the vast majority of the events that come into our system today are coming in through polling. The good news is that's changing. Like the, as time goes on, proportionally more events come in through real-time and eventually we'll get to the point where real-time is sort of dominant. But until then, like we need to invest heavily in infrastructure that allows us to do this constant polling. And then sort of from uh, like a practical perspective, I think that you trade off a lot with Lambda in terms of your ability to have like certain ty- certain types of instrumentation and introspectability. Things like mm. the, the cold start time can really matter for us. Um, you could imagine that the difference between telling your Alexa to turn on your lights, if that happens in, you know, one second because that action hit a Lambda that was warm versus three seconds because it hit a Lambda that was cold, you know, that that sort of like difference in sort of your, your perception of the product can can really add up. There are obviously a lot of places where the timeliness matters less, right? If you're appending a line to an Evernote note, most people aren't like staring at their phone waiting for that line to show up. But there are a lot of sort of more IoT or, you know, interactive use cases where latency is like super, super important for us. The other thing is that the sort of cost benefit of Lambda, I think, depends a lot on there being really sort of like periodic load on those functions, So if you have like a Lambda function that's executing effectively 24-7, the cost of Lambda is going Mm. to be higher Mm. than EC2 and certainly higher than like a reserved instance or something like Spot. So 
having like your full workload on Lambda for something like this, where you have like a really pretty steady state of transactions that are happening, you might not come out ahead on a cost basis. You know, there are other benefits to like, you know, it's less stuff that you're managing actively. So yeah. I think it's it's a lot of trade-offs that, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of digging through. And I'm frankly, you know, super excited about all, all the work that's happening in that space. And I think that it will continue to mature as a like set of products. And, you know, very well in the future, it may be sort of the only sensible way to build internet services because like the expertise and the sort of like all the extra work that has to go into actually like running servers, you know, it kind of gets abstracted away in a really powerful way by Lambda. And we just need to make sure that the tooling is there, the costs make sense, things like that. The show that we did a while ago about this startup where they solved a lot of their problems with burstiness in traffic by using AWS Lambda, that is not the problem that you have at IFT because all day long you need to be polling these services because you you need to be listening to a service like Twitter where they don't have some sidecar process that's running that's saying, oh, we're listening for events that we need to send to IFT. You need to listen to Twitter. And the only way to listen to it is to constantly poll for the information, like if you know, if you've got a hundred different users who have a hundred different applets that they've instantiated, where they're using Twitter as you know something that they're plugging into, you need to be pinging Twitter all the time on like looking at those users' accounts to see what they're tweeting, so that you can make calls to your own internal infrastructure, and because you've got this constant need to be scheduling polling requests to all kinds of different websites and APIs, you might as well just have full-fledged servers up on a regular basis rather than going through the the process of spinning up Lambda and spinning down Lambda containers and dealing with the cold start problem all the time, the latency, and then the, just the issues from that startup, the, co- the costs of starting up and and spinning down machines, you're not going to incur that if you're just requesting EC2 instances and having them just be long running because you're doing polling all the time. So I think interesting. That's that's totally spot on. I would add that even if we just look at the data that comes to our real time infrastructure, sort of like the stuff that would be or the, the events that would be a perfect use case for something like Lambda, because we have users all over the world, there aren't sort of like what you would expect to see as like periodic changes in our throughput. Like we are surprisingly constant in terms of Hmm. the amount of work that we're doing, which in some ways is really good because it means that we're not being wasteful with our infrastructure by and large. But it also means that like, you know, the ability to do smart scheduling around like what compute resources do you have available at a given time? There just like really aren't that many opportunities for us to do that today. So it's kind of nice to not have a problem to solve, but it's also kind of a bummer because there aren't like forces pushing us to try out some of these more novel approaches. How important is cost controls? Are your unit economics good enough that you can have a pretty laissez-faire approach to pouring money into cloud services? Or do you have to make certain build versus buy decisions? It's a really good question. I think that for us... Like, we've gotten to a point where things like services like our 
outbound email service and our outbound SMS service account for maybe not an equal amount, but certainly like approaching equal to our monthly cloud spend. So in terms of like our ability to like reduce our total cost, there are these things that are sort of just like baseline expensive because, you know, we were not going to operate telephony services. I think that generally speaking, we do try to be like very sensitive around our infrastructure costs, though. About a year, a year and a half ago, we went through a pretty intense process of trying to cut costs where possible, thinking about ways to optimize our services, thinking about things like the data that we're storing on S3. Are we storing that in ways that that make sense? Like, are we storing data that we're never going to retrieve again? Are we storing it compressed? Like, what are the access patterns, et cetera, et cetera. We also had a bunch of services running on Heroku because like the the deployment and like management story was so simple and we had a bunch of yeah. users who were like used to it and we're like, okay, like at a certain point that made a lot of sense for us. And then when we had invested enough in our, our Mesos infrastructure, the sort of incremental cost of running an individual container, an individual application was like approaching basically zero. So we were able to fold a lot of those or consolidate a lot of that sort of disparate compute into a single place where we have a lot more control over like the macro view of cost. And that's helped a lot. The really dirty secret about Ift is that our runtime is all written in Ruby. So what that means is blocking I.O., which is just like absolute insanity if you think about what Ift has to do, which is make API oh, yeah. calls all over the internet, and it's all we do. We just do I.O. So we are like, in an absolute sense, like being super wasteful with our compute, and that's something that we're actively working to change. So you know, the goal is to move to something, a different type of runtime that allows us to do non-blocking I.O., and that, I think, is going to have a tremendous impact on our like bottom-line cost basis. Are you thinking Go or Rust or Node? Our sort of inclination right now is to the JVM, primarily because mm-hmm. of library support. As heavy AWS users, like the Java APIs tend to be sort of the, the top oh. tier, or SDKs oh, yeah. tend to be the best on the JVM. And there are a lot of like really cool things that you can do on the JVM. We have some folks who are comfortable with Java. We have some folks who are comfortable with Scala. So you have some opportunity to actually like have different experiences, but still have that core, those core sets of APIs and SDKs being really, really solid. Now, I don't know how, how much you can go into this or if you're even familiar with it, but it's the whole economics discussion of running a business like Ift fascinates me. And you just, you mentioned something very interesting, which is that the email service and the SM kind of, I guess, email and SMS hooks into. So I guess that's basically like if Domino's sends me a pizza, I want to send an email to to my mom and tell her, you know, oh, this I wish I was eating your home cooked food. I'm ordering pizza right now. Uh, that kind of service. Yeah. So like that kind of service is accounting for a large percentage of your. That's accounting for maybe fifty percent of your cloud revenue, and then the, a similar service for F- SM. I'm sorry, your cloud costs, and a similar service on SMS is accounting for you know I don't know another another fifty percent or forty and sixty. But basically, those net out to the costs of your cloud services. But I'm actually curious about the overall economics of the business, like how much, how operationally intensive, for example, is your cloud service? Do you have a bunch of ops people that have to? be on call all the time or is it more of a no ops type of system and 
you know, how much of the cost of the overall business are headcount, just like, you know, when you when you look at the macro of the overall business, is it working and what needs to change to make it work? Or, you know, are you do you have certain are there certain tailwinds in internet usage trends that are going to make IFT an extremely profitable business in the near future? Maybe you could tell me about the economics near term and longer term and how that impacts engineering decisions. Sure. I, I mean, frankly, I have fairly limited visibility into like our overall like cost structure, but things like headcount, obviously, I have uh, like pretty good visibility into. Our engineering team is really pretty small. It's about fifteen folks. Our infrastructure team is two. So we've done that's great. Like a lot of work to make sure that we are able to sort of operationalize things in a way mm-hmm. where you know you need to have the minimum amount of human intervention. And that's been really difficult, but also really rewarding. Yeah, that's that's discipline. I gotta say that's really disciplined. Because if if it's been around for a while and to keep the engineering team at 17, that's very disciplined. Yeah. And we're obviously still trying to grow, but we're not at a point where it makes a lot of sense for us to double or triple or 10x the size of our engineering team to solve some of these problems yet. I think that frankly we still have a lot of a lot of opportunity to you know, further optimize the way that we are applying our engineers to some of these problems. In terms of sort of like our overall business model and strategy, the as it stands today, obviously we're still a startup if, if an old one. So, you know, these things are, are subject to change. But we don't have any interest in charging our users for access to the service. What we do is we charge partners who integrate with IFT uh, basically like a yearly license fee. So at the very minimum, it's you have to pay, can't recall offhand, I think it's like $200 a month to be a published partner on our platform. And then from there, we offer sort of incremental services, whether that's like white glove handling of your building your service, we offer professional services, we offer marketing, etc. So, you know, it, the ability for, for someone to have like a very light engagement with us or really go deep in terms of, of how embedded they want that experience to be. It's so interesting thinking about how IFT, the prospects for the future, because you can imagine two almost equally plausible futures where IFT becomes super important or gets obviated by Google or Amazon or somebody else or just the the relationships between the giants changing. So, for example, if Google and Amazon and Instacart all made it easier to plug directly into each other. And, you know, Google's got their IoT platform and their Google Voice Assistant and stuff, and they just make it more open, then everything would be copacetic. You could just, you know, wire your Google Home into your Amazon Alexa and your Instacart, and they would just ignore their competitive frictions and play nicer together. But you look at somebody like Andy Rubin, who with Essential is trying to make a hub that connects these two, these different businesses that have competitive frictions, because the competitive frictions between them end up being frictions for the user. And so, you you know, somebody like Essential tries to bridge the gap between those different companies. I see IFT as like a middleware that is kind of doing the same sort of thing that takes you know the same approach as Andy Rubin with Essential and saying let's 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 make a way 
to bridge these services together in a way that is agnostic of their competitive frictions. I don't know, are these, are these similar thoughts as to what goes through your head? Oh, absolutely. I think that like we have like long seen the value in us remaining as much as possible a neutral party in sort of uh, this sort of online landscape. I think that in the situation where Google and Amazon and Instacart and whoever, like the, the, the giants, as you say, they get together and they say that they're going to be cooperative in terms of their integrations and their APIs, etc. In a lot of ways, that would solve a number of problems. I think that another place where it provides a lot of value is putting smaller companies, smaller services, smaller products on an equal footing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is more like my personal take than necessarily the company view. But if all that happened was that Google, Amazon, Apple, whoever decided that they were going to work together and have like those products work really well together, it's kind of a net loss because it really closes the door on a lot of interesting innovation that might happen at a smaller scale. So I, I would really be bummed if, you know, there were less interesting IoT products or like cool social services launching on a regular basis because there w- was this much larger walled garden that served a lot of users pretty well, but doesn't necessarily solve all the use cases. Okay. Well, we jumped to the business section of my preparation. Let's scale back. I know we've only got, you know, 10 minutes or so left, but I want to go through the rest of the of the infrastructure, or at least some of it. So we kind of talked end-to-end about how a request from Domino's is going to translate to my Philips Hue light bulbs being turned on. We talked about the server infrastructure that manages that contract between my different services that are bound together by an applet. Let's quickly run through monitoring and data infrastructure so that we know how you are able to have visibility into this system and the analytics that come out of it. Sure. So I think that there are sort of three flavors of monitoring, visibilities, introspection, however you might want to think about it. We use typical APM tools like New Relic for our sort of like edge applications, whether that's like our our APIs or our web servers, things like that. Pretty familiar, I think, for most listeners. We also use your typical sort of like StatsD compatible time series visualizations. We use InfluxDB and Grafana to sort of do aggregates and visualizations on more like application specific metrics and infrastructure level metrics as well. So things like percent utilization of CPU across the cluster or E99 transaction time for a specific request hitting our load balancer. And then from the the if runtime side of things, we have really verbose, like rich output that goes to our, like the final destination is our analytics pipeline, but we tap into that to throw it into Elasticsearch and we do like regular aggregations and visualizations on top of that data as well to get a sense of changes in behavior, being able to look at things like changes in like service time by by individual service that we integrate with, things like that. And as I was reading about the data infrastructure, I read about some things like Elasticsearch, Apache Spark, you know, 
some sections of the infrastructure where data goes in in batches, other places where it streams. Talk about some of the tools that you use in your data infrastructure. Yeah. So the very end of it, like our two sort of final repositories for data are S3 and Redshift. And Redshift is sort of like the thing that most people are using to run queries against our data on a regular basis, whether that's engineering, trying to gather insights into like how people are using the product or our marketing team trying to do cross sections on users and behaviors and things like that. Our data pipeline is a mix of streaming and batch using Spark for streaming and then AWS data pipelines for batch loading doing things like taking nightly snapshots of some of the tables in our production database and copying them into Redshift. We also have some more specialized data products that sit on top of our streaming tools like Amazon Kinesis to do things like predictive modeling for how often we should be polling an API on an applet by applet basis, things like that. So when I worked at, at Amazon and you know also just hearing other people in the industry talk about what it's like to be on call at AWS. It sounds really hard. And IFT is kind of an infrastructure provider. There are people who have built fundamental components of their business that sit on IFT, I assume. What's the ops strategy at IFT? How, you know, what kind of SLAs do you try to have and how, how sensitive do you feel like the infrastructure is? That's a a really good kind of nuanced question, I think. In general, we treat our our systems as critical, right? Like we we don't understand the specific use cases that any of our partners or users are using IFT for. So we kind of have to assume that they're all really, really important. I know that like one of the, the really inspiring uses of IFT is someone built an integration that allowed them to sort of do passive insulin monitoring for for someone in their family. If it isn't actually like passive, what? Uh, like blood sugar, blood sugar level monitoring. Oh, insulin yeah. monitoring. Okay. If it isn't sort of responsible for providing like dosing, but reminder is that like, hey, you should probably have a yeah. little insulin. So you know things like that. It's like, well, we really need to have our systems performing reliably and, and in a fast performant yeah. way. Really important use cases. So I think that like at a fundamental level. It's about the same sort of like engineering discipline that lets us get away with having such a small team, making sure that the systems that we build are robust. And when things go wrong, we know as soon as possible, making sure that we have the right metrics in place to understand like what types of issues are problematic, things like that, as well as having systems that are relatively adaptable at sort of routing around different types of problems. So when... Twitter's API goes down or like Domino's API gets slow for whatever reason, we have protections in place to make sure that that doesn't have downstream effects across all of our users, all of the integrations to make sure that things that continue to work, continue to work really well. One of the sort of like facts of, of running a business that is connecting all parts of the internet is that something's always broken. Sometimes it's our stuff, but oftentimes, just like by the law of numbers, it's someone else's integration that's going through problems. So we provide our partners with in-depth analytics around their integrations. We have alerts that they can subscribe to to know if there are issues with their APIs, things like that. And then we have pretty 
well-defined roles for different people who are on call. So our infrastructure team is responsible for the base infrastructure, anything that's sort of like at the control plane or load balancing level, they're on top of. We have a, a team that's on call for the IFT runtime, making sure that the system's like the thing that enqueues checks for applets is running and that we have enough capacity to execute all of the applets in an expedient way. And then our web team is on call for things like the website being down or, or reaching a critical level of errors. And that really allows the people who receive a page to be you know, able to act on it pretty immediately because it's a system that they're intimately familiar with. And it also creates positive feedback cycles. So like if you get woken up because of a, you know, an issue in, in a, the code that you deployed earlier or that you had a hand in creating, you're much more empowered to go in and like understand what that was, figure out how to make a change and you know, help yourself not be alerted by that in the future. All right. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation, Nikki. Maybe you could close off. Tell us what IFT is working on right now, maybe some of the big engineering challenges that you personally are focused on. Hmm. So I think that my focus at IFT is on the runtime. And as a team, we are really focused on what we hint- I hinted at earlier, moving our like core Ruby runtime to something more performant, probably on the JVM. What kind of cost savings are you going to get out of that? <laughs> it's really difficult to say. <laughs> I would guess like for our, our part of the system, probably on the order of like 10 to 20 X. Yeah. But you know, it's like, it's hard. It's easy to be like really optimistic about that. It's also hard to underestimate the the total cost of blocking IO again in like a system like ours. Sort of like depending on on how we're measuring it, like we are at sort of like ninety to ninety nine percent idle at any given time. So there's a lot of opportunity to to make some big improvements there. All right. Yeah, that's it. Cool. Anything else you want to add? I don't know. We're hiring. So if folks are in the San Francisco Bay Area interested in any of the projects that we're working on, whether it's our runtime, our infrastructure, our data products, our our mobile apps, our web products. We'd love to talk to you. All right. And you can send Nikki an email, perhaps, or send me an email. I'll connect you to Nikki. Or you could probably find him on Twitter. I assume you're on Twitter. I am. All right. Great. Cool. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jeff. It was great. Wow. Wow.